One of the amazing aspects of the story we've just heard is a simple fact that there's no judgment in the story. It's a judgment-free zone. Jesus and this woman, this unnamed woman at the well in Samaria, treat each other with respect and kindness. We really shouldn't be surprised because after all, last week, if you were here, we heard Jesus say in John 3.17 that he was not sent to condemn but to save, that is to make well, to heal, to redeem, to renew us. Not to condemn, but to save, to heal, to renew. In the world we live in today, especially in the United States of America, people are all too quick to condemn, to attack, to judge just spend some time on social media and make a comment that might be a little bit controversial, a little bit edgy, and see what happens. I spend a lot of time reading on uh, the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and my favorite one is The Athletic. It's about sports, as you can imagine. It's almost worse there, though. You go and read the comments on some of the, the, the pieces that are written, and people are being called names like idiot and moron and, and worse, frankly. What's happened to us? We're so quick to condemn, to attack, to, to judge. There was a piece last week in the New York Times, an opinion piece, by Ross Douthat, who's a theologically and politically fairly conservative commentator. He was making a point, though, that we need to hear. He's wondering why are America's teenagers in so much distress? Why are they miserable? He quotes the CDC, the Center for Disease prevention and control. The CDC reports that America's teens today are especially overwhelmed with feelings of sadness and being lost. They're overwhelmed. He goes on to then quote NYU's Jonathan Haidt, who wrote the book, The Righteous Mind. I'll say more about that a little bit later. Professor Haidt believes that the primary cause for this is exactly social media. It's those chat rooms, those places in the comment section and various websites, wherever it is you go, where people are so mean-spirited to each other and our teens are growing up in this culture and it's having a great deal of effect on their lives. Now, Mr. Doubthat gets into some social, social political ideas that I, I don't really agree with, but his point is strong and it is one we need to hear. We are so quick to condemn, so quick to attack so quick to judge. We need a judgment-free zone. We need a place like Camp Akita where we can go and be who we are no matter how we identify, no matter what we believe or think or don't believe. We need a judgment-free zone where you and I can be ourselves, where respect and grace are the ways we speak to each other, the tools we use in the conversations, especially the difficult ones that we have. At the 9 a.m. service, we have a, a, it's a contemporary style service. It's led in worship by the Common Grace Band. We sang a song this morning that says, we are how we treat each other and nothing more. It's a line from the chorus. We are how we treat each other and nothing more. Well, Jesus doesn't know that little song, but he knows the idea. He understands what it means to be gracious, to treat the other with respect. The story we heard today of Jesus in the conversation with this unnamed woman at Jacob's well is a model for us of respect and grace and inclusion, and not just on Jesus' side, but on hers as well. In fact, did you know this is the longest one-on-one -on -one conversation Jesus has with anybody in the Bible? 
longer than anything with Peter or James or John, longer than the time that he appeared in a vision to the Apostle Paul, longer than the, the conversation he had with Pontius Pilate on the night that he's been arrested. This woman, this, with this unnamed woman, this is the longest conversation he has, and both of them treat the other with respect. They listen. They respond gently. They hear the other. And by the end, she's been treated so well, she believes she may have met the Messiah simply because they've had a kind and gracious, respect-filled conversation. It's a beautiful story, an amazing one. And we shouldn't be too surprised because just as we learned last week that Jesus said in John 3.17 that he did not come to condemn, we also learn in John 3.16 that for God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. Samaria is part of the world. If Jesus' message is going to be taken to Greece, to Rome, and beyond, to the ends of the earth, they've got to start in Samaria. Samaritans and Jews do not like each other. They have theological and political differences that have divided them for years. They do not like each other. It's a surprise to this woman that Jesus would sit down and talk to her. After all, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you talking to me? Because Jesus knows what he just said a couple of verses before. For God so loved the world. John gives us a little clue, a kind of a foreshadowing of something amazing that's going to happen in this story. He says early on in the story that Sarah read a, a moment ago that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Now that sounds like a geographical note, but it's much more theological, about theology than it is about geography. There's, there's Judea in the south, Samaria is north of that, and then Galilee, which is where Jesus is headed, is north uh, uh, above that. Now he could easily have gone the route along this, the Mediterranean Sea and over to Galilee. It would have been a little bit longer, but much less uh, arduous uh, uh, journey because Samaria is hilly and filled with mountains. It would be tough to go up and down, up and down, up and down. It might be a few miles longer, but maybe a day or two shorter and much, much easier. But John's telling us Jesus had to go to Samaria because he has to start there. He has to start with their immediate neighbors, with the ones, with the ones that they cannot stand to be in the presence of. The, the background to that story is that centuries before the time of Jesus, when the Jews were taken off into exile, only about 10,000 were actually taken. They were the ones who were well-educated, the ones who were wealthy. The rest, most of them poor, were left behind. And then what happened over the centuries was those who were left behind began to intermingle and intermarry with their conquerors. And soon they began to take on in their religious and political life some of the aspects of the ones who had conquered them. You can study history and find this happening all around the world throughout, throughout history. It's not an unusual phenomenon. But when the Jews who were fairly well cloistered in exile come back centuries later, they're still very, very careful in their practice of Judaism. But the Samaritans have adopted other ideas and it immediately, it immediately becomes a theological and a political split. That's why in one of the sections that, that we did edit out, and you, if you thought the reading was long this morning, go read John 4. It's about 50% longer than what we heard today. In one of the parts that we edited out, the disciples come back and they find Jesus talking to this woman and they say, what are you doing talking to her? What are you doing talking to one of them? In my manuscript, uh, you could see, if you could see my manuscript, you'd see that the word them is in all capitals and bolded and italicized. I even made a little note in the, in the margin that said, say it with a sneer. Why would you talk to one of them? 
is what they're saying to Jesus. Well, if the disciples read their Bibles, they wouldn't be surprised that Jesus is talking to her, this Samaritan, this enemy of, of the Jews, as it, as it were. Because it's in the Bible, the part of our Bible that we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, where we read in Genesis, early in the book of Genesis, that God calls Abraham to be the founder of a nation whose job is to bless the world in the name of love, the world. If you read through the prophet Isaiah, you'll find that the prophet Isaiah has some hard things to say around the 700s to the people in Jerusalem, but the prophet Isaiah begins, we need to remember who we are. We're called to be a blessing in the name of love to the world. You read, you read through the prophet Joel. What does the prophet Joel say? He says God's spirit will be poured out on all people, on young women, old men, everyone else in between. God's spirit will be given to all. And then we hear the stories of Jonah and Ruth, two very different styles of stories, but they're motivated by the same, by the same theological idea, the universal gift of God's grace given. So of course he has to go to, to Samaria. Of course he has to meet with this woman and treat her with kindness, dignity, and respect. Now I know, this is probably the most Bible-y sermon I've ever preached. It may be the most Bible background you've ever heard in a sermon, especially at, at, first, at First Community. But there's a reason for this. This story could transform your life and mine. This story of respect, of grace, of kindness, of a judgment-free zone could transform you and me. It could transform our families. It could transform our church. And if our church takes it seriously, we could be a transforming agent in the community. That's the beauty and the power of the story we've heard on this day. Something new is starting here. Something new is beginning. Rachel Held Evans, the, the young theologian whose life was taken much, much, much too soon, says that in the Bible, wells are where God does something new. There's a note there in the story that this is Jacob's well. This is the property that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. You might remember Joseph is the one who saves his people when he becomes a leader in Egypt. There's another sermon there. That was something new that began there. Now, centuries, many centuries later, here is Jesus at the same well and something new begins for him, and something new begins for her. Jesus realizes he's got to take this message even to Samaria. And it's not an original message to him. He's building on what Abraham and Isaiah and Joel and Ruth and Jonah and so many other voices in his Bible have, have been calling on people to do, to, to proclaim the good news of God's universal love for everyone. And what's new for the woman is she encounters somebody who doesn't treat her as a marginalized person to be ignored, instead looks at her deeply, listens, understands. You know, part of the story is, 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 that's interesting is a, is a note where Jesus says, you, you have had five husbands and the man you're with now is not your husband. Male theologians for years used to look at that part of the story and say, see, she's a sinner. She's a wild woman who's immoral and, and behaving in a way that's, that's completely wrong. There's absolutely zero evidence of that in the text. Can we be clear? There's none. Jesus says nothing to her about that in terms of judgmental voice. No, no calling her a sinner, no telling her to stop, none whatsoever. And in fact, in the ancient Near East, 
it was not unusual for a woman to marry at a very young age, in her early teens even, and often would be married to a much older man. And it was not uncommon for a woman to become a widow because of those arrangements, even in her teens. And it may be that this was what happened with all of these husbands. It may be simply, it may be as simple as that. And there are a host of other things that I don't have time to go into, but let's be clear. She's simply a woman trying to live. And Jesus treats her with kindness, grace, respect, and love. It's a beautiful tale given to us on how we might live. But part of the problem, especially for our culture, is the way we think. Now, Professor Haidt, who I mentioned earlier, wrote the book, The Righteous Mind. This is a thick, dense book. It's not easy to summarize, but his essential idea, I don't want to make it simplistic, but his essential idea is that we tend to think that we come to our political, especially conclusions, our sociological conclusions, by the means of reason. We reasonably think about it, we pay attention to the various issues, and then we come to a conclusion. The professor from NYU argues that's not how we do it these days in the United States of America. We come to our conclusions, especially around moral issues, by a sense of our guts, by our intuition. Now, now stay with me here for a moment. By, it's by our intuition. And then we take reason and we try to use reason to explain how we got to that idea. And that's part of the reason why we don't hear each other. What, what, what Professor Haidt wants us to do is learn to understand the other person's moral intuitions. If I can understand your moral intuitions and you can understand mine, then we can have a place where we can begin to have a dialogue and a discussion, even if our conclusions are different and disagree. My friend Jim Long, who is the Minister of Pastoral Care Emeritus, preached a, a beautiful, thoughtful sermon on the first Sunday uh, back in, in July. I came down with COVID that week and, and Jim graciously stepped into the pulpit and, and filled it for me. I remember one line clearly from his sermon. Our problem in our world today is that we talk over each other. We talk over, not with, not to, but over. What's the song say? We are how we treat each other and nothing more. What's that look like? Well, that young theologian I quoted a moment ago, as I said, she, she passed away about four or five years ago. I looked up her obituary online. It was published in the New York Times. In the Times, they note that she was always willing to take on people who had different political and theological views than hers and was always, always, always kind, gracious, and respectful, tough, and a a brilliant mind, an ability to argue very well, but never at any moment did she, did she lose respect for the other one she was taking on. And most of these persons were, were uh, males with extremely fundamentalist theological views who saw her voice as invaluable, but always, always, she would take them on with respect. And in fact, the, the obituary reports that, that Russell Moore, who was a leader in the Southern Baptist Church, says that he was blessed by her he said, and I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm paraphrasing, he said, her theological views were as far away from mine as they could possibly be. Yet I learned from her, not only from her arguments, but from the kind and gracious way she always treated me. It was Martin Luther King who said about 55 years ago, 
it's time for us to, re, to rediscover the power of redemptive love. That's the same love that Jesus names in John 3.16, that Jesus describes in John 3.17. I do not come to condemn, but to save. It's redemptive love that can save us, that can heal us, that can redeem us. Maybe it's time to allow ourselves to begin with kindness, respect, and grace because that's the only way to go. Amen.